Anyone who's going to be here with me today, you can turn to Revelation chapter 15. So you can grab your Bible, grab your phone, grab your device, and we will be in Revelation 15 and 16 today. We're doing two chapters. Who's ready? Woo! So we're moving through our series that we've called Apocalypse Now, walking through the book of Revelation. We started back in the new year, and Lord willing, we will finish this up by Christmas time. And we've just been going through a chapter at a time and walking through the text. And we are not so much being concerned about solving every single mystery that's in there. We're talking about them all. We're wrestling with it for sure. But we are mostly concerned about what is the Spirit saying to the church through his word? What is his message to us as we dig into God's word together and as we listen to what he is saying. So we're going to be in Revelation 15 and 16 today. We're not going to go through every single verse in detail because we just won't have time for all of that. But we're getting into uh, stuff that we've touched on already in this series as we talk about the anger and the wrath of God. Somebody say amen. N.T. Wright uses this analogy. That back in the day, before our society was built up to the level that it was, before we had the coordination that we had, uh, if you lived in a town, there was a decent chance that you might not have a judge who lives in your town. And just especially out west, as the the country was being developed, and this is the same in America and England and different places, a lot of places didn't have a judge. And so if you had a lawsuit against somebody or if somebody had been accused of a crime and was under arrest, there wasn't someone in town to deal with that easily. And so they had what was called circuit judges. And so circuit judges, it means something different today. But back then, what it meant was there were judges that literally traveled from town to town in a circuit, and they would actually go around and they go and spend a couple of weeks in this town and they would deal with all the lawsuits and all the criminal charges and then they go to the next town and they deal with all the cases there and they go to the town after that and so they would just make their way around the countryside and they might have 10 or 20 towns that they were overseeing and so the judge would move around from place to place and and they had to be someone who knew the law well and who could administer justice well and there just weren't that many people who could do that and so the circuit judge would travel around and so if you can picture Uh, being in those places, and let's say you've had a a business deal that's gone wrong, or let's say that there's been a a lawsuit that you filed or has been filed against you. Let's say that you've been attacked and the person who attacked you is in jail and they're awaiting a trial. And for a long time, you just have to wait because there's no judge. There's no one there to to make this thing move forward. There's no one there to settle the lawsuit. There's no one there to, to declare that the defendant is guilty or innocent. It's just not there. You just have to wait. And then one day down the road, you see the horse coming. You see the judge coming. And now finally, the justice that you've been waiting for is arriving in town. This is actually a really, really good thing. This is a really, really good day. You've been waiting, you've been waiting, you've been waiting. Maybe you've been falsely accused and you're waiting in a jail cell. You've been waiting and you've been waiting and you've been waiting. But as the judge rides into town, justice is finally coming. Justice can finally be served. And this is always a good thing when justice is served. There is something hardwired into us. We know as we're watching a movie or as we're reading a book or hearing a story, we know the bad guy is supposed to get it in the end. We know that the good guys are supposed to be vindicated. We know that. And even though it can be kind of trendy in movies right now where there's like the twist ending where the bad guy actually wins, we know that's not right. That doesn't feel right. It doesn't sit right. You leave that movie going, that's not the way it's supposed to be. We know justice is supposed to happen. It's just built into us. It is hardwired into us. And I believe that's because we are made in the image of God and God is a God of justice. There is something about that that is built into our, our, our appeal uh, to the world that this world is supposed to be met with justice. That is just supposed to happen. So we're gonna be looking at this idea in Revelation 15 and 16 today. As we go through the message today, if you have questions about anything relating to the message, we do have an email address question at meadowbrook.ca and be very happy to take any questions and keep the conversation going. But let's take a look at our text, Revelation 15 and 16. So I'm just going to read for a little while here. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 15, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. 
They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked and I saw in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead person, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, O Holy One, you who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Look, Jesus says, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together in the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth, so tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled, the wine, filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell on people, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. All right. How are we doing? All right. Wrath. Turn to your neighbor and say, wrath. The word does something. There's something to that word. It's a weighty word. It is a heavy word. And it is one of God's divine qualities. It is part of who he is. And so we are not faithful to the biblical text if we're ignoring the parts about who he is that we don't like or that are uncomfortable. And so you're not singing a lot of worship songs about the wrath of God, right? There's not a lot of excitement about the wrath of God. But you know where there is excitement about the wrath of God? In heaven, in these chapters. They are saying this is actually a good thing. And, and that's hard to wrestle with, to be certain. But it is in there that they are actually singing worship songs about this. And so we're not going to touch on every verse today because there's just too much. We're going to just kind of hit the main big ideas of the text. But the wrath of God, understandably, it's a difficult thing to imagine. It is a, a heavy word. It is a scary word. And yet it's an important word because it is part of who he is. Richard Niebuhr, H. Richard Niebuhr was a theologian in the 20th century, 
And he was very concerned by what he saw as a drift in the church to move away from things like God's anger and God's wrath and God's holiness. And not necessarily that we need to live there and camp there all the time, but he was worried that if we overemphasize the love of God, which sounds weird to say, but if we overemphasize to it to the extent where we're denying other parts of who he is, then it could move into a dangerous place. And so he kind of looked at the the broad state of the church and the theology of the church and his concerns with that. And he put it this way. He said that view would be a God without wrath brought human beings without sin into a kingdom without judgment through ministrations of a Christ without a cross. He's saying this is obviously not a good thing. Right and, and where there can be a movement to say, well, let's not call sin, sin, or let's not bring these things up because they make people uncomfortable or they can turn people off of the gospel or whatever. His concern was we can't move in that direction because if you take away the wrath of God from the nature of God, A, you're denying scripture, but B, you're also removing a key part of who he is because as heavy as that word wrath is, it has to do with his justice. His wrath shows up in response to his justice and justice comes is always, always a good thing. Justice arriving is always a good thing. So part of the expression of a holy God is his wrath. And so this is just my uh, snapshot biblical definition of wrath. It's simply this, anger expressed through retributive action. Anger expressed through retributive action. So anger is the emotion Wrath is what happens when the emotion moves into action. There is something that God is doing, and there is a retribution to it. There is something to it that is dealing with the problem, that is, that is dealing with the, the sin, that is making things right, that is lifting up those who have been oppressed, and also, if necessary, tearing down those who have been doing the oppression. There is an action to it that is balancing the scales. There is an action to it that is setting things right. And as unpleasant as it is, it is the view of his uh, justice in action as well. Because if God doesn't deal with sin, then he's not just. If God lets evil carry on forever, then he's not good. And as a good and just God, he has to deal with that. And as we talked about last week, he has also given us every opportunity to avoid it. He has given us every opportunity to miss out on his wrath. He has offered us forgiveness. He has welcomed us back into the family. He has offered us eternal life. It's there for everybody to take if they want it. But for those who refuse to be forgiven by him, their sin still has to get dealt with then. And Jesus has done everything he can to allow that not to happen. But it is there for us to to, to choose. It is there for us to decide. And some, unfortunately, are not going to choose to receive the gift that he has offered. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 15, again, don't get nervous. We're not going through every single verse, but we'll hit a bunch of them. Chapter 15, verse 1, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign. John has said that often in Revelation, I saw a sign. There's a woman crowned like the sun. I saw a sign. There's a great red dragon flying across the sky. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues last because with them, God's wrath is completed. That's actually a really good verse. That's actually really good news. It's good news because it's coming to an end that God is dealing with sin. He has promised he would deal with sin. It's not pleasant when he deals with sin, but it's also not going to last forever. There is an end to what is coming. And so God has a limit on, on what his, how long his wrath will last. And so we have seen different cycles of judgment happening in the book of Revelation. There were seal judgments, right? The seals were opened and things were happening on the earth. And then there were trumpets blasting and things were happening on the earth. This is the final round. And the picture is of bold being poured out, of of something of God's wrath being poured out on the earth. And there's been an escalation in each of these things as well, that as the, the first round, the seal judgments were happening, that affected a quarter of the world. And then as the trumpet judgments came, that affected a third of the world. And now we're in the bowls, and the bowls seem to be affecting the whole world. Uh, and, and tied into the beast and, and his kingdom and anyone who would worship the beast and follow after the beast. And so the good news is we are coming to an end. And it says something about the anger of God. Psalm 30 verse 5 says, For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, 
but rejoicing comes in the morning. And so it's important for us to know when we're talking about God's anger, we're talking about his wrath, that God is not a fly off the handle God. He's not a, he doesn't have a temper. He doesn't react instantly. He is measured. He is patient. We sang this morning. He is slow to anger. That also comes from the Psalms. He takes his time to get angry. And then there are times where his anger gets to the point where it moves into action. And that's, that's wrath. That's the shift from anger into wrath. But even then, his anger lasts for a moment. God doesn't brood and brood and brood and brood like we do. He doesn't stew in his anger for 47 years like we do. God does get angry. He acts on that anger, and then he carries on, and he, he doesn't hold that uh, forever and ever and ever. His anger lasts for a moment. What we're seeing in Revelation is anger that has reached the point where God has to act, and then it's going to be done. The anger will be over. It's not going to be an eternal anger that is there forever. And so we see the snapshot of heaven. There are people in heaven uh, who are worshiping God. These are the ones who have overcome the beast. These are the faithful Christians who have not compromised themselves. Verse two through four says, they held harps given them by God and they sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So they sing a song, and we said this before, they sing in heaven a lot. And so if you don't like singing here in church, I don't know what to tell you, because in eternity, we're apparently going to be singing a lot. And so this is our dress rehearsal. This is our practice. We get used to singing together. It is something that we will be doing in eternity. And so there is this song going on, and it is called the Song of Moses and of the Lamb. The Song of Moses takes us back to the Old Testament. As we've often talked about in this series, so many things that we see in the book of Revelation have an Old Testament connection. So what is the Song of Moses? The Song of Moses shows up in Exodus 15, and it's right after Israel has passed through the Red Sea and been delivered out of the hands of Pharaoh's army, and then the, the sea has come back and taken out Pharaoh's army. And so Exodus 15 says that Moses and Miriam get up, and they lead Israel in a song. They say, I will sing to the Lord, for he has greatly exalted the horse and the rider he has hurled into the sea. We used to sing worship songs like that. And so in Exodus 15, we get the song of Moses, and it is a great celebration of God who has fought for Israel and delivered them. And this song that they are singing in Revelation 15 is a song of God's deliverance, similarly. And so it's a similar type song. There is worship happening before the Lord because he has kept his people and he has triumphed over the enemy. He has triumphed and delivered them ultimately. Even ones who have laid down their lives for the gospel, they haven't actually died. They are still living with him. They have still triumphed and overcome by the blood of the lamb. And so the song of Moses and the song of the lamb, it's a song of victory for the God who always wins. It's a song of victory for the God who is never defeated. And in this song, they also make this acknowledgement, king of the nations. The nations are going to come and worship you. And we know when Jesus gave the great commission to his church, he said, go into all nations, right? Go everywhere and share this gospel. Share the message that God loves you. Share the message that his son has died for you. Share the message that there is a way back to God. There is a way to come back to him. And that way is Jesus. Go and share that message to everybody. Go and share that gospel. And so we know that that is the case. That is part of the mission of the church. But the idea goes back way, way, way before that. It's actually all the way through the Old Testament. There's just a few of the scriptures there. But it's all the way through that God was the God of the nations. That God was calling the nations back. Jesus brought the way that it was going to happen. But it has been all the way through scripture that God wants the world back. He wants everybody back. It goes all the way back to Abraham. Abraham, every nation in the world is going to be blessed through you, through your bloodline, through the Messiah who's going to come. And so God has always had a heart for all the nations of the world. And when we're going to see as we get to the end of Revelation where the nations come together, God in the Old Testament reveals himself primarily to Israel and speaks through prophets to Israel and then shows himself to the world through Israel. But his plan has always been every. Everybody. He was never just going to be a one nation uh, God. He was going to always be the God of Israel, but he wants the whole world back. And so they begin to sing in anticipation of this, that God is bringing everybody back to him. 
Verse 7 and 8 of chapter 15. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. And so there is apparently a temple in heaven. And we get this idea from Hebrews. Hebrews says that the earthly temple in Jerusalem was kind of a shadow. It was a replica of what was going on in in heaven's temple. And so there's this temple there filled with the smoke from the glory of God. We've seen this a couple of times in the Old Testament, uh, most notably in Solomon's temple, that the the glory of God actually showed up visibly like smoke. Like it was like an actual cloud of glory filled the temple here on earth and, and fills the temple in heaven. The glory of God was actually thick. That's how thick it was. And I've never had that visual. I've been in times in church and in worship services where the presence of God just seems that thick that it does feel like a cloud. It's just, it's in the atmosphere. The atmosphere is weighty with the presence of God. It's a wonderful place to be. We should be seeking that always, to be in his presence. And so the glory of God is there. There's a a timing to this that until God's done doing this, um, until he's done this final stage, no one's allowed to go into the temple uh, because God is at work here. There is something going on. And so I'm not going to walk through all the plagues and the meaning of the plagues. Just to say this, there's plagues here listed that include darkness and water into blood and sores and different things. And it sounds an awful lot like plagues we've seen in the Bible already right? It sounds a lot like the the Exodus story, that as God's judgment was coming upon Egypt, there was darkness and there was plagues, there's hailstones coming later and and different things. And so there's a similarity there that anyone reading this in the first century would say, well, some of these sound a lot like what we've already seen God do when he was dealing with Egypt back in Moses' time. And so I don't think, as with many things in Revelation, we need to take them literally, like there's a literal order that these things are going to happen in, or that it might literally look like these things. I think it's very possible that it's just saying God does deal with the sin of the world. God does deliver his people out and God will vindicate the oppressed and God will deal with the oppressors just like he always has. And so the reminder for anyone reading Revelation in the first century would have been just like God delivered Egypt or delivered Israel out of Egypt's hands, God will deliver us out of what we are facing. God will free us from our oppressors and we will be vindicated by him in his justice ultimately. And so we, we, you know, wrestle through the, the wrath of God, the weight of this falling on people. But again, the word of the Lord says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you read this passage, the wrath of God, A, isn't falling on the believers. It's falling on the the kingdom of darkness. It's falling on those who follow the beast. But even that was not ultimately what God wanted. God was not wanting anyone to perish. He's wanting everyone to come to repentance. God is not, like his first choice isn't this. But we are evil people. Mankind is, is evil, and, and we, we don't acknowledge God, and we want to go our own way, and we refuse to, to be corrected, and we refuse to come back to him. And if we are going to refuse all of that, and if we're going to refuse the gift that he has offered in Jesus to say, hey, your sins can be forgiven, these things can be wiped clean, and you can come back into right relationship with God, and you can know him and know his presence, you can hang out in the glory cloud, you can walk with him and know his voice and follow him not just here on earth but all the way into eternal life and if you choose not to accept that gift there's nothing left because the way to get to heaven the way to right standing with God is to get your sins forgiven and we believe there's only one way to get our sins forgiven and that's through Jesus that's it's it's not something we do it's the gift that he gives us that we receive our job is to receive it to say Jesus i i receive the gift i acknowledge that i need the gift and i will follow you i will trust you and i will follow you and the gift comes the forgiveness comes if we're not forgiven in the sight of god then all that's left is justice for us but that's not what he wanted for us and that's why jesus came in the first place so heaven is talking about what is going on 
the, the plagues happen, the boils and sores happen, the, the waters turn to blood. We saw that in Egypt again. Verse five through seven, one of the angels says, you're just in these judgments, O holy one, you who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And so there is, uh, there is praise happening over this, not because I imagine anyone is thrilled to see suffering happening on earth, but there is an acknowledgement, again, that God is setting things right. And when we're told in scripture, hey, you don't take revenge for yourself. You don't do that. You let God deal with that. God says, I will avenge you. I will take care of these things. You don't worry about that. And the reason for that, I think, is because we're really lousy judges, right? We're not measured. We're not careful. We're not perfect. We are fleshy. We, we have tempers. We, we don't see everything that we need to see. God is God and we are not. So God says, you leave the vengeance to me. And it doesn't mean that we're giving up, you know, that, that justice is happening. It's that we are trusting that God is the one who will deal the justice and that he's better at it than we are. And so for those who have shed the blood, God gives them blood and, and there's a, a balance to it. There is a, a you know, a, a fairness to it, if you want to put it that way. And so God is there dealing with the problem. He doesn't say, hey, they've shed blood, so strap on your swords and get some blood back because that's what the world does. We don't do that as followers of Jesus. We trust that God will make it right and he will make it right. And that's part of Revelation's story is that it will be made right. And so there is a... a peace in heaven. And, and again, I can't imagine that it's like exciting to see suffering happen, but there's an acknowledgement that God is setting it right, that justice is arriving, that those who have been oppressed are being vindicated, that those who are doing the oppressing are being dealt with. And so they are, you know, they are moving forward in a good way that God's plan is coming to pass, that we are coming to the end. And so even as this is happening, just to show the state of the world and the people who are, who are not uh, receiving this forgiveness, who are struggling with that, we see verse 9, we see it a couple of times in the passage, that the people are seared by the intense heat from the sun, and they curse the name of God, who had control over these plagues, but they refuse to repent and glorify him. We've seen that a number of times in the book of Revelation, that people are acknowledging God. It's not like they're atheists saying there is no God. They're saying, no, there is a God. God is the one who is making these things happen. God is in control of these things. But they still refuse to repent. They still refuse to give glory to him. And we've seen these calls throughout Revelation of just, hey, come back to him. Turn away from what you're doing. Stop going down the wrong road. Stop doing these toxic things. Stop following the wrong voices. Come back to God. Come back to the one who loves you. Come back to the one who died for you. Come back to the one who wants to spend every day from now and the rest of eternity with you. Come back to that God. And they won't. And they won't. Even acknowledging that God is causing these things, they won't come back. And again, if that's the case, then there's, there's just nothing left. There are no more gifts to come. God has already done everything he can to help us avoid this place. There is nothing left. And you say, well, how is it possible, right? Things are happening. How is it possible? And you think, well, how is it possible for Pharaoh? Remember Pharaoh's story? Moses comes and says, let my people go or else God's going to do some things. And Pharaoh says, no. And then God starts doing some things. And it happens exactly as Moses said. And then there's times where Pharaoh goes to Moses and says, Moses, hey, please pray to God to stop these things and I will let you go. Moses prays, the thing stops. And then Moses, or sorry, Pharaoh says, I changed my mind, you can stay. And it happens over and over and over again. And if you read through that discourse in Exodus, it says sometimes it says God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes it says Pharaoh hardens his own heart. But there's a point where he's just, he's locked in. He is stubborn. He is refusing to bend. And you would think if I said, uh, you know, hey, Jim, can you pray that it would be nighttime right now? And all of a sudden at 10 in the morning, it became nighttime. I go, maybe the God that Jim is praying to is actually powerful to do these things because I just saw this with my own eye. 
But Pharaoh is so stubborn, he just can't see it. He refuses to acknowledge it. And, and God is working something out through all that, obviously. God knew it was going to happen that way. But we see people at the end, and they are refusing to acknowledge God. Now, our job here is not to get cocky about that, not to get self-righteous about that. Our job here is to say, where am I like that? Where am I stubborn and stiff-necked? Where am I refusing to turn away from my sin? Where am I refusing to do the right thing that I know I should be doing? Where am I like that? And if we're being honest, I'm sure we must all have areas there. Where am I like Pharaoh? Where am I like these people? Where am I not doing the good that I should be doing? Where am I continuing to do the bad that I should be avoiding? Where am I not repenting? Where am I not living as I should live? And not to get like, oh, stupid Pharaoh. Oh, can you believe these people? No, where are you in there? Where am I in there? And we say, Holy Spirit, show me. Because I don't want to be stiff-necked. I don't want to be stubborn. I don't want to be the clueless who don't realize the damage that they're doing. We don't want to be found there. We want to be different than that. Moving into chapter 16 more, verse 12 through 14. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. So that's one of the great rivers around Israel, and it wouldn't be a factor today because we have airplanes and helicopters and stuff. But back then, when everything was, all armies were marched and, and horses and chariots and all that kind of stuff, crossing large bodies of water was a big problem. And so as part of this stage, we're gonna, getting ready for the final battle. And so the Euphrates dries up and and that way the armies will be able to cross it as they come into Israel. We'll get to that in the days to come. Then I saw three impure sp spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They're demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. So we've talked in Revelation 2 about when it's really important for us to know what one of these mysterious symbols are, that God just tells us what it is. And so he doesn't tell us everything in Revelation. There's a lot of stuff in Revelation we're not given crystal clear answers to. And so when that's the case, I've been saying all along, that's fun to wrestle with, it's fun to debate and discuss, but we don't need to die on those hills. But sometimes God just says, here's what this symbol means. So these frogs come out of the dragon, the first beast, the second beast, the so-called unholy trinity, and they look like frogs. And he says specifically, these are demonic spirits. They're not actually frogs. They're not actually monsters. These are demonic powers being released into the world. And their job is to go and deceive the world and go especially to the kings of the world and gather them together for battle, which is going to come in the chapters to come. And so there, you know, the old Pentecostal thing was, the devil's a liar, amen? And everyone would say amen. And you could say it about anything. You know, Leafs lost last night, the devil's a liar, amen? Amen. And so you could just stick it in. It was a good preacher joke. Uh, Mennonites don't laugh at it in the same way. But... We, we know that that's the core of who he is and what he does. Jesus says when the devil lies, that's him speaking his native language. He's been a liar since the beginning. That's, that's just who he is. He's a liar. And his, his, one of his ways that he afflicts mankind is he deceives us. And we did a series last fall called Truth Seekers, and we talked about uh, just how do we find truth in this day and age when we have access to all this information and there's a million different opinions? How do we know what truth is? How are we wise and discerning people in this time? And we took some time to talk about the devil because the devil's a liar, amen? amen? And so I had you do this last year, and we'll do it today. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're probably deceived about something. <laughs> I wasn't joking. <laughs> That was not me being funny. I, I, we're all deceived about something, and, and hopefully not the big things, but I don't think there's anyone who's totally free and totally self-aware and totally knows everything about God and totally understands everything about how the world works. Like, the enemy is, is at work in all of us. Hopefully, we're getting freer and freer and freer as we walk in more and more and more truth, but let us not ever be so arrogant to believe that we actually have it all figured out. Right? I, if, at the very least, I think we're all self-deceived to a certain extent. Right? We don't know ourselves perfectly. We have an image of ourselves that is inaccurate. And so we are on this journey of walking in truth more and more and more. We have a duty to speak truth to one another. We have a duty to dig into the word of truth and to pursue the spirit of truth and to follow Christ who said, I am the truth. And as we do this, hopefully we're getting freer and freer and freer. Part of the nature of deception, of course, is that when we're 
deceived, we don't have any idea that we're deceived, right? We actually think we're in truth, or, or maybe we're not even thinking about it at all. But part of the nature of deception is we don't know we're being deceived, and that's where we need God's word. That's where we need one another. That's where we need to be aware, and we need to be alert. Not fearful, but aware and alert that, that there is deception out there, that not everything we hear is true. Not every rumor we hear is true. Not everything we read is true. Not everything I say may be true. I tell you often, go to the word yourself. Check into this stuff. I have no qualms that I am perfect in everything that I say, although I hope you trust me, and I hope you trust that I pray into this stuff and I work hard at it. I, I don't claim to have it all perfect. We are all in this journey of growing in God's truth. We are all in this journey of growing in truth, period. It's actually uh, one of the fun things about life is to learn more and to grow and to, to walk in greater freedom as we find out where, where the truth is and what the truth is. And so these frogs go out into the world to deceive. Uh, that is what the enemy does. He's a liar. And we want to be aware of that always and be aware of, of where we need to grow in truth and how we can pursue that as we follow after him. As this is all happening, Jesus kind of interrupts in the middle of it. So there's this description of the plagues that are coming. Here's the first plague, second plague, third plague, fourth plague. And then right in the middle, Jesus just kind of interrupts the narrative and starts talking in verse 15, chapter 16. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as to not go naked and be shamefully exposed. And it's as if Jesus just couldn't wait till the story ended. It was so important that the reader hears him say this. So I'm not even going to wait till the last few plagues are done before I communicate this truth. I am coming, and I'm coming like a thief. And it's a very unusual picture for a holy God, right? If he said, like, I'm acting like a murderer, you'd say, like, oh, that's weird for a holy God to use a sin as a picture of something about himself. Jesus says, I'm coming like a thief, so stay awake. And that really is the main idea. It's not, of course, that Jesus is endorsing thievery, but it's a picture that he has used before. In Matthew's gospel, uh, Paul and Peter would use it as well in the New Testament, the idea that when Jesus comes back, it will be like a thief in the night. And what that means is it will be sudden and unexpected. Because I've, like, I've never had my house broken into. When we were in Sudbury, we had our car broken into once. If you've ever been through anything like that, it's a jarring feeling. Right? You feel like you have these things and they're your things and your property and it's safe and it should be secure. And when someone violates that space and takes something of yours, that is, it's just a, yeah, it's very off-putting. Even if no major damage is done, it's a very strange feeling. And the point behind the metaphor that Jesus uses is, if I'd known that person was going to break into my car that night, I probably would have stayed up. Right? Maybe call the police, maybe just stay up, right? Leave all the lights on, right? I would have done something. I would have moved my car. I would have done something. I would not have been caught off guard. And so the point of the metaphor that Jesus comes back to over and over again in his word is that when Jesus comes, it's going to be like a thief in the night. That is to say, it's going to be unexpected. You're not going to know the hour in which it comes. So your job is to stay awake. Your job is to stay alert. Your job is to live your lives as if this could happen at any point. As if at any point we might hear the trumpet blast, see the Lord come, and stand before him in our judgment. And if we thought that, if we actually lived that, then none of us would be saying, oh, I'm just going to hold on to this sin for a little while longer. None of us would be saying, oh, I know that relationship needs mending. I'll get to it. None of us would be saying, oh, there's people in my life who don't know about Jesus. Uh, Lord, please lead me one day to the time when I can share who Jesus is with them. It's to live in that readiness. It's to live in that expectation that he is coming back and we don't know the hour. And because that is the case, when you look at the early church, when you look at the book of Acts, they're not just sitting around discussing strategies. Like they're actually out doing the things that Jesus told them to do. Because they knew that either at any minute the Romans could come and cut our heads off or at any minute Jesus might return. But either way, we got to be at this. There was an old bumper sticker that said, Jesus is coming. Everybody look busy. 
And we don't want to look busy, but we want to be doing the things that he told us to do. One of the pictures that he uses is like it's a master who leaves his servants in charge of the house, and then the master comes back. It says it will be good for those servants to be doing what the master told them to do when he returns. It will go well for them if that happens. And so because we don't know the hour, like a thief in the night, because we don't know exactly when this is going to be happening, our job is to be living out the things that he's told us to do and live that out now so that if he did come back before I'm done this sermon and we had to stand before him and give that account of our lives, we will have been found doing what we were supposed to be doing. We're not going to delay dealing with the sin. We're not going to delay dealing with the relationships that need fixing. We're not going to delay doing the good things we're supposed to be doing. We're not going to say one day maybe I might get to X, Y, and Z. We're not going to delay reading his word and taking it seriously and living it out. Because he's coming like a thief. We don't know when. But may he find us doing what he called us to do when he returns. So Jesus interrupts, and then we get back to the story. The frogs are going out. They're deceiving the world. They're bringing them together. Verse 16 of chapter 16 says, They gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And so you've heard that term before. Again, kind of like the term apocalypse, Armageddon is often used as a synonym for end times uh, or disaster sometimes. It's sometimes called the Battle of Armageddon. Now, we're going to see when the Battle of Armageddon happens in a few chapters. It's not a battle at all when people stand up against the throne of Almighty God. It's not a battle. A battle suggests that there are equal sides in some way, or a battle suggests there's some back and forth. A battle suggests there's some confusion as to the outcome. There's nothing about what's going to happen that is in confusion. There is nothing about it that's actually a battle when Jesus Christ stands up and decides to act. It's just, it's done. It's just, it's over. And so there is a place in Israel called Megiddo. And so I think pretty much every scholar I read believes that's probably the place that it's talking about. And so this is a literal place in Israel. There's a picture of it there on the screen. There's a little hill to it and lots of plains around it. And uh, as we've often said in Revelation, as I have often said, I should say, because I'm the one doing the talking, as I have often said in Revelation, um, there's a lot to it that I don't think we have to take literally, and it concerns me by how we tend to pick and choose what's literal and what's not. And so there is a literal place called Armageddon in Israel, um, and it has been a site of well over 200 battles in recorded history. It's a very uh, violent place. There's a lot of bloodshed that happens in that place. Uh, a lot of fighting has gone on at this place called Armageddon. And so we're going to get to this so-called battle in a, in a few weeks as we continue to move through the book. Um, again, I think anyone in the first century would have heard there's going to be a battle at this place where there's been a lot of battles. There's this very bloody place in Israel where warfare has happened a lot. So if we're using a picture of how Jesus is going to overcome the world, it would make sense for it to happen at the place where there's been a lot of battles and a lot of bloodshed and a lot of warfare. And so uh, whether it's literally going to happen in that place is up for debate. It certainly could. Um, but it, it would have, again, sounded to the early listeners as, oh, that well-known place where all the battles happen. Uh, of course, it makes sense that Jesus would come for this final battle there. So we will get to that in a little bit. Almost done, sort of but not really. Chapter 16, verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. So all the other bowls have been poured out on the earth. This bowl is being thrown up into the air. And then we hear this loud voice from the throne. That's obviously the voice of God saying, it is done. Now we've heard that before, haven't we? There's a familiar tone to that. Uh, we hear it in John's gospel as Jesus is on the cross coming to the end of his life. And that is his final phrase on the cross. It is finished. It is done. And as Jesus is laying down his life and he is saying it is finished, he is saying it's finished to a number of things. His life literally is finished. He is breathing his last. Uh, the, the bulk of his earthly ministry is finished. But much more than that, uh, everything that he was sent to accomplish, as far as his job it's done, 
right? God's going to raise him from the dead. But in terms of everything that Jesus was supposed to do, his job is done. And as he says it is finished to his job being done, we know also it is finished in terms of our sin is finished, right? Our, our life separate from God is finished. That division and separation is finished. Jesus was finishing all of those things. And now as we go through Revelation, we hear the same coming from the throne. It is done now. It is finished now because now the fullness of everything that Jesus did is going to be realized absolutely and completely. That when Jesus said it is finished, that was the beginning of the the inauguration of everything that the cross and resurrection would purchase. In Revelation, as we hear it is finished, now it's all coming to an end. It's all going to be redeemed entirely. And so when Jesus says it's finished, really in a way, it's the beginning. It's the beginning of people having their sins forgiven. It's the beginning of his kingdom advancing. It's the beginning of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Uh, As the voice comes from the throne saying, it is finished, now the wrath of God is finished. Evil is finished. And now everything is going to be redeemed and restored, which again, we will get to in the verses to come. Last couple of verses of our passage, verse 18 through 21. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell on people, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. Again, they are acknowledging God, but still refusing to turn to him. And this is judgment-type language that is common uh, in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament a little bit as well. Uh, We can take it literally. We don't need to take it literally. The picture that is given is very, very clear that God is dealing with Babylon. And we're going to spend some time, uh, not next week, because Robin Cerez is here with us next week, but the following week, we're going to really dig into Babylon. What is Babylon? Who is Babylon the Great? Uh, The prostitute of Babylon, which is the next chapter we're going to get into. Is this Rome? Is this the New World Order of the End Times? We We'll dig into that next time. What's clear for sure is God is not a Babylon fan and God is going to deal with Babylon and, and will finally remove her. He will, his judgment will come and deal with her once and for all. And so as these pictures come of earthquakes and hail and thunder and lightning, it's again, it's apocalyptic language that we've seen before in scripture that we don't need to take literally necessarily. It's the picture of God's judgment and it's obviously coming with finality that the city is being destroyed. It will not rise up again. And this key line in there, it says, God remembered Babylon the great. God remembered everything that Babylon had done. God remembered. And sometimes we can feel like the ones who are, you know, back in the day waiting in town for the judge to arrive, right? I've been wronged. I have been, you know, assaulted. I'm looking for justice. And we can just feel like, Lord, why? Like, why? Why did that happen to me? Why is that person getting away with that? Why is this not being met with justice? And and the encouragement there is God remembers. God remembers. And we are not agents of God's wrath. We are agents of God's gospel. So it's not our job to take revenge and get retribution. But we know that where there has been wrong, that we will see that justice done. And I mean, hopefully as well, we're not living in that sense of that person needs to get that. Because when it comes to justice and judgment, we're also warned in Scripture, with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And so in that sense, I go, it's in my best interest to be merciful. <laughs> right? if, if I want mercy, if I want compassion, if I want that, uh, then that will be measured back to me. Now, we have to wrestle that with Revelation, right? Where there, is, there are people in heaven calling upon God for justice and for judgment to come and to deal with these things. And so we got to continually wrestle and figure out ways to hold all of these things together. Come on up, worship team. We're ready to wrap up. But God remembers. Even if it takes a while, by our standard, God remembers. God does not forget. And, and part of trusting God is saying, 
I just trust that the judge of all the earth will do what is right. I trust that he will do what is right. And if judgment is called for, he will judge. And if mercy is what's needed, he'll give mercy. And, and if grace is what's needed, he'll give grace. But I will trust that he will always do what is right. <sighs> How are we doing? What do we do with all this? We call 2021 a year of thriving here at Meadowbrook Church. We often name our years and have a theme for the year uh, and tie it in. And so a year of thriving. How do we thrive in our walk with Jesus? How do we thrive in a time where we don't know what's coming next all the time and, and we're in uncertain times? How do we thrive primarily in our walk with him? How do we find that place of peace? The Apostle Paul said, I've learned to be content no matter what the circumstances. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So how do we find ourselves to that place? How can our walk with God be blessed and thrive as we follow after him? First of all, we will thrive when we don't ignore the wrath of God. And that sounds weird because wrath would be something in general we would like to put aside. We would like to not pay attention to, but we will thrive when we have a proper understanding of how this fits in to who he is that God is just and justice sometimes calls for judgment. And, and that judgment comes only when that person refuses to turn away or repent, but that is part of who he is. And so when we have a, a good fear of the Lord that says, I don't walk around terrified of him, but I understand that my actions have consequences. I understand that sin will be dealt with. I understand that God loves me and will discipline me at times. If I continue to go down a path I shouldn't go down, we'll actually throw there. That's actually a good thing. It's actually a good thing to understand how his wrath, how his anger, how his discipline, how his judgment fits into our walk with him. Because if we just ignore, ignore that side of him and just say, well, it's all just mercy, it's all grace, it's all love, then again, we're not being faithful to the scripture, which talks about both, but we're also not being faithful just to who he is. And so any part of thriving in a relationship is knowing who the other one is and getting to know them better. So we will thrive when we have an understanding of how the wrath of God fits in. And that's something I personally think we really got to wrestle with, right? Wrath and mercy, anger and love. Like we got we to gotta wrestle and hold these things together. I like the wrestling match on things like that. Some people don't. They would rather it just be crystal clear. Not everything about God is crystal clear. I don't think. I think we have to wrestle sometimes, and this would be one of those areas. So have fun wrestling with that. We will thrive when we live our lives as if Christ is coming like a thief in the night. We will thrive when we do exactly what he told us to do. Because then we won't be delaying. We won't be putting things off. We won't be saying one day I will deal with dot, dot, dot. Like we won't be putting off our sin. We won't be putting off our reconciliation. We won't be putting off sharing the gospel. We won't be delaying these things. We will thrive when we take his word seriously and actually believe that he's coming back at an hour that we won't understand. And we say, Lord, have mercy. I want to be found doing what you called me to do when you return. I want to be a servant who is found faithful in your house when you come back. We will thrive as we do that. We'll thrive when we take our sin seriously. Again, we are not the ones who are subject to the wrath of revelation because we've been forgiven. And yet, this whole chapter also talks and shows us about the seriousness with which God takes sin. And so my sins are forgiven. If you follow after Jesus, your sins are forgiven. We are, are right with him. Uh, if we died today, we would stand before his presence. We'd be welcomed into eternity with him. I believe that fully. But that doesn't mean that my sin that I still commit on earth is good. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't do damage. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't have consequences. So we can allow the word to speak to us and just remind us of how seriously God does take sin and what it does provoke in him when it's not repented of and when it's not dealt with. And that actually, too, is a good thing. These are not easy things. But these are all good things. We will thrive as we take our sin as seriously as God does. We will thrive as we live our lives as if he was coming like a thief in the night. We will thrive when we understand how his wrath fits in to who he is. And all of us, if we give that some thought and prayer, will have things to do 
out of those revelations. I don't need to tell you what to do. The Holy Spirit will do that. But there will be things that we live out out of those understandings. And as we do that, we give thanks to the God who has saved us from this, who has come to save the world from this ultimately. And we will give him praise for what he has done as he has done everything he can to save us from this end. And we will worship him for the forgiveness that he has bought for us and the gift that he has given to us. And so as always, we want to do that before we leave. And I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet, please, at home. Crank up the volume on your TV. Belt out this song with us because he's worthy of our worship in all of these things.